want to welcome everybody to tonight's uh, live rimcast with Jake Raving. We have a special guest, Sean Burke. And without any further ado, I'll go ahead and turn it over to you, Jake. All right. Yeah. Thanks, How you doing, man? Good, good. I guess you guys can hear me okay. So, uh, yeah. So, welcome, Sean. And uh, thanks, Bobby, for getting this put together. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of changes that have happened in the engine program. Uh, people don't understand what those changes are, but, you know, basically at the end of the day, it doesn't matter anymore because we haven't sold an engine until Sean purchased this one uh, in one year. So actually yesterday, February 1st, marked one year to the date since I kind of tagged the line on what we now call the old program. And we completely rejuvenated everything with the technical technical collaboration between Flat Six Innovations and LN Engineering. So they're selling our engines. Basically, it's a private label engine deal. And all the engines that we build here at Flat Six are going to be sold through LN. My general manager, Judd Fink, is going over to the LN side on March 1st to sell and support those engines. Um, and this particular engine with Sean, the one he purchased, was the first one of the new program. So it was a bit of a uh, milestone to have redeveloped the program. Um, a lot of people think, oh, you, you did this to make more engines. No, we actually did this to make less engines. We did this to spend even more time on every engine and to take vehicles out of the equation because we've always, you know, installed engines into cars here at Flat Six. But now that's not something we're doing. So last week we had Todd Lamb of Atlanta Speedworks on with us, and I was explaining the collaboration that we've got going on with him, where he basically took over our old installation facility and repair facility, and he's able to do all the work they do on their race cars and also will be able to support uh, the engine program here with Flat 6 and LN as a super certified installer of these engines right in our old facility. Um so Sean went into this uh, as part of a notification list. Uh, there's no wait list anymore. There's no deposits anymore. And basically, just really the kind of the way it works is you contact us. You ask some questions about, hey, you know, how much does this cost or whatever through the ticketing system. Judd gets back with you and says, this is kind of how things work. I'm going to send you an application. You fill out the application. Review panel looks at it, and either you get a Tier 1, a Tier 2, or a disqualification as far as the program goes. And yes, the, you can be disqualified based on if your car has a tr crazy amount of mileage, if you've got a, a big-time failure, uh, if there's something that is not basically going to match you up very well with the engine program, it's a disqualification. It just means that our program doesn't fit your car. It doesn't fit you, doesn't fit the car. We're sorry, but that's the way that it is. Tier one is basically where Sean was, where you get first chance at an engine when it's completed, and the first person that is able to pull the trigger once a hidden link goes live on the LN website for that particular engine, you get to buy it. So literally, you can be on a notification list, if you want to call it a wait list, for one day. You could be on a notification list for less than a day based on when you send in your application and when it gets qualified as Tier 1 or Tier 2. Now, a Tier 2 purchaser, basically you have a less than favorable 
purchase condition. You know, you've, you've got an engine that's broken. You've got an engine that has more than 120,000 miles as a core. You know, basically, you've got something that is not a stellar transaction. It's not a home run all the way around. So the way you may be able to purchase an engine with the LN Flat 6 Innovations program is if all the guys on the Tier 1 notification list don't purchase it, it goes to Tier 2, and then Tier 2 guys get a chance at it. So some of these engines may never make it to tier two. I tell people that quite often, you know, don't wait because you may not ever see one. It may not get listed. So uh, this FSI 2737 was a first engine of the new program. It went live on a hidden link that all the guys on the notification list for that particular engine got. And everybody everybody had an equal opportunity to pull the trigger on that engine. So with that being said, I'm going to introduce you now to Sean because he's the one that pulled the trigger on that engine. He's the one went into this knowing that he was part of a beta test for the selling procedure and the support and the installation procedure because this engine was installed by a certified installer. Okay, so he knew he was going into this, and we thought there was going to be some bumps, right? It's the first time we had done it like this. Although this was coming off the heels of our premier program we've been doing since 2015, where we let our certified installers install the engines, even though it's coming off the heels of that program, it was still the first engine from a new program. So I'm thinking, hey, teething problems, we're going to have issues, but it was quite the opposite. And if the weather would have worked out right, he would have had his car back in like nine days, and that's never, ever, ever happened again. I think he got it back in less than two weeks or something 11, like that. 11 days. Yeah, 11 days. So <laughs> so that was with bad weather, and that held up the testing some at the certified installer's location. So anyway, um, Sean, Bobby, I, I'm going to let you guys kind of have a little bit of an interview back and forth here because, of course, Bobby has got his own questions that he's come up with because – he knows what enthusiasts want to hear, uh, and he knows what guys that are interested in these cars want to hear because he's one of those people. And um, I'm just going to let you guys have a bit of an interview back and forth, and then, Sean, I guess after you answer something, I might be able to add a little bit to it. But it's going to be interesting to see um, what you thought about this process with it being the first time it was done and the first time we sold an engine this way. And I think people are like, why is it got to be so convoluted? Why is it got to have all these steps? I think it's important that you have a procedure in everything you do. You can't have just things be haphazard and you end up with a result like this, right? We've we've got it greatly simplified. And you know, you don't have to wait a year and a half or two years for an engine anymore. If you're quick on the trigger and you got cash in your wallet, you can buy this engine and have it installed in eleven days. Hey Sean. Thank you, man. Yep. Appreciate you joining us, man. Yeah, it's good to be uh, here. You know, It'd be you better know, if I were in the car, but Mother Nature <laughs> and Mother Nature and distance are not treating me well right now. It's all good. It's all good. Well, I just wanted to tell everybody that Sean and I were talking before we started going live, and and one thing I love about cars is is that every car has a story, and every car has some kind of a memory behind it. And honestly, I'm probably just as fascinated by a lot of the stories that I hear from people that have owned these cars. I love to go to the car shows and the cars and coffee events and just talk to people and say, how'd you get this car? What's the backstory? And I always love to, to hear, you know, what they went through to get these cars. It seems like most of the people that have owned, contrary to popular belief, 
these, especially the M9X generation, really don't come from like everybody looks at these cars. Oh, you got to be mega rich. That's not really that much. In fact, a lot of these cars are cheaper than even some of the cheapest four cylinder cars out there. And it, but you wouldn't think that, you know, people don't walk up to the Porsche and they go, oh my gosh, that's, that's just the coolest thing at all. But I've always been fascinated, Sean, about, you know, the stories behind these cars and what you had to get do to get this car and everything that's involved. So why don't you just start off and tell us what is your Porsche story? So mine's probably one of the, the less interesting Porsche stories, but um, I think it was about summer before last, uh, sold my boat because between my daughter's schedule and my wife getting motion sick, we weren't using it. And so it was time to, I spent more time cleaning it than using it. So it was time to sell it, which temporarily left me with a big garage space and too much money. And as a, as I jokingly used to say, a retired car guy who had focused on my bike and the boat and not done much with cars in a while, that's a bad thing. You know, those are two bad things to have. So I started, started thinking about getting back into cars and started looking at, I had, I had a string of a uh, string of a uh, two or three BMWs before I got out of cars. Um, always had a had a couple of little like hot hatchback cars used to like to drive used to like to do track events and autocross and so i started thinking about you know what do i want to look at and so started thinking about porsches and as, as i told you before we started my very first car was a 72 volkswagen van um, with the flat four um and so it was kind of kind of neat for me to come sort of full circle but with a lot more power and a lot better handling and less rattles than the uh 72 Volkswagen van. So I, I actually started looking, started looking at 996s and 997s. Um, I like, you know, I like the 997 body style more because it, it's kind of holds true to the, you know, the real, you know, real Porsche. The iconic look. Yeah. Yeah. The, and I'll like, just on the side note, I mean, yeah, there was a lot of controversy about the 996 because of what they did. Well, Pinky Lay, I think that's how he's pronounced his name. He designed a 996, but Honestly, in all fairness to the 996, um, Porsche, uh, very Porsche, the son, before he passed away, was saying that 996 actually saved the company because they were in bad shape. But I totally get it. I mean, that's why a lot of people like the 997 because it, it has more of the iconic look to it. But basically, it's the same car. I mean, a lot of the underpinnings and everything, Jake can tell you all the specifics yeah. there. But of course, they did up the interiors a little bit different. But for the most part, it still has an M9X engine, uh, M97. Some of them had the M96, I believe, right, Jake? And um, uh, some of the early ones. Um, but um, continue on, Sean. I don't mean to interrupt you. Yeah. No, no worries. If I had the space and hadn't just bought a very nice engine, I would probably have one of each. So Absolutely. <laughs> someday maybe. Hey, I was one actually th one thing that's interesting, so something that's interesting. So you said your first vehicle was a 72 Volkswagen bus. So you see behind me here in the engine room, this crankshaft, that's yeah. what that's out of. I'm actually building one of those engines right here. So that engine is what started my company. That's what oh, yeah. I started with was building yeah. those. Yeah. And I still build a lot of them. See that block yeah. right there? That's a brand new crankcase for one of those engines. Well, that, <laughs> so, that, base, block, that base block was shared with the 914, wasn't it? Yeah, same engine. That, it's just a bus. The yeah. the the bus spec was, you know, it, it was made for more oh. torque and it, uh, you know, and that sort of thing. But yeah, it's it's the same foundation uh, from one seven to two liters. And uh, you know, the thing is, used to when you talk nine fourteen around Porsche people, they just shun you like, well, how, what? That's not a that's a Volkswagen. But now the thing is, all those guys that shun you, they want a nine fourteen four now. 
and the the cars are cool. So I'm like, how the hell did this happen? You know, when I was in the 914s, everybody that was a Porsche lover, if it wasn't a tail drag in 911, that you didn't rate anything. They didn't want you to come to events. And now, oh my goodness, that's a 914 and it's not rusted out. I want one. So it's it's crazy. But anyway, that I thought that was kind yeah. of funny that what you what you started with is what I started with, yeah. both as an enthusiast and in business. Well, and I gotta say, as a 16-year-old kid with a you know well well worn VW bus with a wood front bumper, it was nice to tell my friends it had the same engine as a Porsche 914. So that was my <laughs> that was my story every time somebody asked me about my bus. But so yeah, so tell I, us, Sean, tell us. Uh, okay, so you sold the boat. So how long of a process to get you into this car? And I kind of got a good idea of yeah. why you wanted the 997. But yeah. tell us kind of the amount of time it took before you actually found the one. So this is where bringing trailer is a bad thing. I actually I actually ended up buying the car before I'd sold the boat. I had a deal I had a deal done on the boat. I was just waiting for the guys financing to come through and so and Fortunately, I was sitting on enough cash that I could make it happen. But I had been watching Bring a Trailer, and which is a bad thing to do. Looked at a, looked at a lot of cars, and I wanted a I wanted a cab because I wanted my um, my my daughter likes to my daughter likes to ride with me. She likes being out in the air, so wanted to, wanted to get a cab that, that we could use. Um, and so I started watching, bid on a couple, and then actually I wasn't the winning bidder on this car. I um, I think I was second like the second person out, it, it hit a little high and I, I, I stopped. And then a couple of days later, I got the, uh, the always fateful email from bring a trailer that um, the, uh, the original bidder had backed out. And if I wanted, they put me in touch with the, uh, they put me in touch with the seller. And so I said, why not? And the seller is actually a guy who runs a small car dealership in, in, of all places, deal, New Jersey, which, That'll tell you interesting story on its own. And so <laughs> went back and forth with him a little bit, um, made, made a deal on it. Um, and then a couple wired him the money and about a week later, later, and this was, this was still, I think this was still during the tail. Yeah, this was, so this was summer, August of 21. So still in the COVID time, hopped on a plane, flew to New Jersey because I have lots of airline miles one way, took an Uber out to his place and drove the car back 500 miles, which Considering so the let date me ask code you on a the, quick question. Yeah. Did it concern you? I, I know you're from the North. This is no disrespect, yeah. but you're in the rust belt, man. The sand and the salt they put on the roads just, just does numbers on these cars. Yeah. Did but it it's, concerned you. Did it? Yeah. Con now, honestly, I bought a car from yeah. Pennsylvania yeah. and it has been great, but it's a Volvo and, it, and it's a different, yeah. I mean, they they build these cars like the Volvos are. They, they one of their impressions is these these cars are born in snow, but a Porsche, that would concern me, you know. I, I would so be the, like, what, the what history, if they drove it all year round, or is it just a yeah. seasonal car? So so the history on the car, because again, that's you know, as I was researching the car, so it spent some time in Connecticut, and then it went to California, and then it went to Florida. It was actually owned because I'm I'm the third or fourth owner of it was owned by a lawyer in Florida. And honestly, I was more concerned about the time in Florida because what, you know, what salt salt air will do to anything mechanical is worse than, oh, you know, absolutely. Worse than the snow. Absolutely. But, and, and they think that everybody says, I want a car from the South. Uh, how yeah. South are you talking about? <laughs> because yep. You get down in South Florida but, and it, they, they'll do the same. I, I can't tell you. Yeah. My family is from Miami. 
So when you've been down there and you see what it does to these these vehicles down yeah. there, it's just like what it does up north. Well, that's my my boat came. My boat was a saltwater boat and it came from Fort Walton Beach. And I spent the winter after I got it, I spent hours with a Scotch Bright pad cleaning every piece of stainless steel and dealing with everything yeah. from that salt. <laughs> So, it'll do it but, it'll do it yeah if you get near that salt water it will yeah yeah i just didn't one, understand these people like in daytona that drive their cars in the water down there on the beach oh, yeah. like i wouldn't get anywhere near it <laughs> yeah but this one had good pictures and it yeah. only had when i got it it had just under thirty-five thousand miles so yeah. you know it was very clearly a you know second third fourth fun car because at right. you know at that point 50 years old and 34 34,700 miles it concern you that it wasn't uh, here's a here's a little irony to throw in here. Some of uh, and Jake can elaborate on this. You know, when people look for cars, they're looking for a low miles cars, and low miles cars will be a lot more money than the higher miles cars. But what Jake and Charles and some of the others that have been looking at these cars and working with these engines for more than twenty years have noticed that the low mileage cars suffer worse than the high mileage cars. So I, I learned all this. Did that not I, cross your yeah. mind, man? Well, so so here's here's one of the things, and I, again, I haven't done this in a while, but one of my bad habits with vehicle purchases is I'll end up jumping a little early, and then I then I end up learning learning everything after the fact. Once I own something, then I start digging in deep. I mean, I, I joined Renlist, I started poking around, and that's when I started to learn about. I mean, I knew I knew about the IMS bearing thing because I do have a friend with a with a um, 996 cab who had that he had a, he had an IMS bearing failure and had to have the engine rebuilt. Um, so I knew about that. So that was one of the things: the fact that it had the bigger you know the bigger IMS bearing. But I did not know anything at that point in time about bore scoring or any of the other failure modes. But then started learning, and that got me on to you know finding out as I started and and after I got the car. I realized at some point, because all of my toys are nowhere near stock, at some point I knew I was going to do some kind of engine build because, you know, the the sad part is, you know, the the 997, you know, the non-turbo 997, has such a wonderful chassis, but I feel like it, it stock, there's just not quite enough motor to match, you know, to match that wonderful chassis. And so I knew at some point I was going to do something. And that's, you know, that's what led me to start to start to look at flat six and, and all of, you know, all of Jake's videos. And so I started to learn and I'm like, uh Oh, I realize I have a bit of a ticking time bomb. So I need to think about what should I do with this? Well, before we go that, that far, let me back up a step. Yeah. That I forgot to ask you, what is it about the nine, nine, seven? I think you said it was a 2006 C4S yep. Cabriolet. Yep. What is it about, you said the iconic look, but what was it about that of this car versus, say, something newer like a nine nine one or a nine nine two? So, so some of it, it obviously was cost. I mean, you know, and I'm in. Oh, so you, you know, had a Yeah, yeah, yeah. A bit of it. I was trying to stay. And of course, as always, I went a little over, but trying to stay within, you know, what I, I promised my wife I would stay within what I, uh, what I got out of the boat, um, somewhere around there. Yeah, um, but so, also, I like. Two things I like are one, the fact that the 997 is smaller. I mean, the 991, 992, they are bigger. You know, I've, I've sat in a couple, I've driven a couple. It and, is crazy how big yeah. they look. Because, um, of course, I've been to Jake's lot yeah. and I've seen the size of the 997. I've gone to these car events and you'll see a 991 and a 992 right next to a 997. 
and I just couldn't believe how big they've gotten. They yeah. really and are. I like the, I I also like to do as much of my own work as possible. I mean, on like on my motorcycle, I've done everything on it except split the cases. You know, I wanted a car that I could work on that, and you know, I, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of the electronics end of it. I, uh, you know, the, the tuning. Once I once I learn, you know, once I learn it, I want to start to delve into that in a couple of years. But you know, I've got a Durametric, so I started to dig into all the data logging and everything. But the newer ones, you know, it starts to get to the point where you've got to have permission from the mothership even to look at it cross-eyed. And that's the nice thing about you know 997. It's got enough electronics to be a little modern, you know, it's got the stability control and things when you want it, but it's still mechanical enough. It's got a, you know, it's got hydraulic power steering. It's, you know, it's drive by wire. It's not a throttle cable, but most of the, you know, I think 90, what was it? 99 was the last, the last 99X that had a throttle cable, but it's still analog enough that it feels like a, you know, it feels like a glove rather than an appliance. And that's. Yeah. And, and I tell you all the time, people ask, you know, or they try to compare doing something like what you like what you've done with your nine nine seven one with doing that to even a nine nine seven two or just trading for a nine nine seven two or a nine nine one. And I've got a lot of guys that have had both cars and some of them have gone back to the car you have. Like they they got out of a nine nine seven, they went into something newer, and then they realized it really wasn't what they thought it was going to be because the 997 spoiled them. And I mean, I've driven all of these cars, a lot of them. I mean, a lot of these cars and, you know, every car we build an engine for, it gets 104 test miles before it leaves. And uh, before I hired Richard, my test driver, I did it all. And it, it kind of sucks when you drive cars, like five different cars, a hundred miles a day. Um, you know, in the same day, I've driven this five different cars, a hundred miles each in the same day from daylight till dark, doing that all day long. It gets old. Um, even though we got an epic test road, uh, we call it the flat six ring. But what I'm getting at is having driven all of these and compared them. I don't want anything newer than a 9971. I just don't, you know, um, anything newer is too big. It's desensitized. It's too heavy. Uh, most of them are PDKs during that one generation, which I really don't care for. Um, you know, I don't know. It's just really strange how many people have gone back to a 9971 after owning something else. And it's also interesting now how many messages I get from guys that say right out of the gate when they send that first message through the ticketing system. I've decided the 9971 C2S that I have is my forever car. I got one of these today, by the way. It's my forever car. I've decided that I do not want anything newer than this. So I know putting your engine in the car is the best way to get a return on my investment. I got a guy that said that today. And I agree with that. And obviously, you know, I don't think this guy had even seen videos or, or I don't think he was even on rent list. I mean, he's only owned the car this particular car for a few weeks, but he's had a 996 before. And so obviously the 996 and the 997, you know, there is a lot of upgrades to going to a 997 from a 996, but I also love 996s. Um, so I think that Bobby asked a good question, and, and, and that was a really good answer too, Sean, because it's something people always have this understanding of, I want the newest thing I can afford. 
Um, and in, in, in some days past, people always were told, buy the newest Porsche you can afford. But now those cars are not what a Porsche is about, I do not believe. And, and keep in mind, I come from the from the you know the old school side of Porsches where you know it was an upgrade to have power brakes. Uh, your your heat smells like oil when you turn it on. Um, your defrost sucks. Uh, your AC sucks. But you have an epic driving experience, and that's it's where AC. I came from. Yeah, that's where I came <laughs> from. The first time I got in a nine nine six, it was a hundred degrees outside. I turned on the AC and it was frigid, and I'm like, "You got to be kidding me! How did they do this?" You know, I came from my eighty eight Carrera and got into that, and I'd upgraded my AC on the eighty eight Carrera, but it was nowhere near cold on a hundred degree day. Um, but that's a, that's a good, a good point because when people are trying to make decisions about investing in a car, the first thing that I tell them, a number one, and I, I think I even asked you this, uh, over a year ago or whenever you contacted us first was, do you love the car? A number one, do you love the car? If the answer to that is no, I am not and never will be your guy. I don't want to be your guy. You know, I want to build these engines for the guys who have a forever car. Well, I will say when, you know, when I found out you'd stopped the old program and didn't at that point, didn't know when the new one was going to start, you know, I started to contemplate whether I wanted it to be the forever car or not, because, you know, I wanted, if it was, I wanted something that had, it, you know, had an, everything else because it still needs, I mean, I've got to replace the headliner. There's a bunch of stuff I need to do, but, you know, now it's got an engine that I know is going to, Last well, how did you how did you identify Sean? Sean, back up to the engine. You got this car in. Yeah. The beautiful, beautiful car. How long what was it that happened? How long did you have the car before you realized this engine needs help? It, I know so, we talked about the horsepower, yeah. but you were learning so started, about the issues yeah. on windless and were you getting so not, any yeah. Uh, check engine lights or anything like that? No. So, so the one thing I took it to, there's a good, good uh, independent shop in, 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 you know, not too far from me who does a lot of work on, you know, does, does a lot of work on Porsches and, you know, other European cars, took it there, had it gone over stem to stern, all the fluids changed, wanted, you know, good, you know, good first professional opinion on everything. One of the things, and, and by, I think by then I'd actually, you know, I, I learned about flat six innovations. I was really approaching it from the horsepower into things. Cause I knew, I knew even after driving the car for a couple of months, I'm like this, I'm going to need to do an engine build because I know what I want it to be. And it's not quite there yet. But the one thing they mentioned is that, you know, they, they heard some slight tapping, um, which at that time I, that was when I hadn't learned what bore scoring was yet, but I also, and this is, this is where all the pieces start to come together. So the gentleman, you know, the gentleman that I bought the car from, who has a small dealership in New Jersey, if you if you search him on YouTube, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna mention any names, but if you find my car on on uh, find my car on Bring a Trailer, you can find the whole history. But there's a guy, um, I think he's I can't remember if it's like Porsche Dad or something, who bought a car from this dealer. Turned out it had bore scoring. He was stuck with it. He actually ended up rebuilding his own engine and made a series of YouTube videos. Um, a lot of trial and error. I don't know if the car is actually still running or not at this point, but I realized that I probably, you know, probably ended up with something that's got, you know, got some, some potential problems coming either sooner or later. And so that was the point where I decided I, you know, I want to do an engine build anyway. So I'm either going to do an engine build or I'm going to start thinking about, you know, do I need to move on from it? And so really, you know, when, 
the the new program, you know, when when Jake announced the new program and when the, you know he started started telling us that new you know timing for the new, for the first engine, that's really what made my decision that I was going to hang on to the car and it was going to become the the forever car. Sean, did, I mean, actually, Jake, did you examine this engine? That, I know the program is different, but did, when, when the, his engine was taken out of the car, was it dissected? And so, so the way it works is these engines are installed and and basically processed by the certified installer, meaning that the certified installer, like in his case, was able to pick the engine up from us because he was already heading south. He picked the engine up from us, and then he took the engine by Sean's house and picked Sean's car up in his trailer, took it all back to his shop, pulled the old engine out of the car, got the new engine back in the car in less than a week. And honestly, we don't have the core back yet because it's this all just happened. So, I mean, it's been only a few days since Sean took delivery of the car. So we don't have the core back yet, but you know, to, to qualify for a tier one purchase position in, in your application, it's gotta be an elective build and you have to have less than 120,000 miles. You can't have any failures and his engine didn't have any failures that were noticeable. Now, if it has bore scoring, we don't care. We don't classify for this program's means anyway, bore scoring as a failure. Um, because we're going to remove those cylinders completely in their entirety. So we don't care if they're scored. They're going to end up, you know, as chips that, of, of material that get recycled and they come back as a Kia or a Hyundai or something uh, one I day. It's not, but, it's not, but we don't it's care. A, you, you've called it a, a mode of failure in the past, but it's really not a total loss. Well, it is it's a mode of failure. That the engine can be saved. Yeah, it's, it's, the only, it's the only mode of failure that we consider doesn't have collateral damage. Now, if somebody drives it so long that everything, the oil is all sludged up and all that, it can create collateral damage. But usually it gets so loud, the knocking sounds are so loud, it's eating so much oil that you can't drive the car when it gets to that point. So oh, I saw one. Know, I don't know where it was. Maybe it was on the engine group where it had eaten into the piston skirt so bad, it's almost like the piston skirt was almost completely gone. I couldn't believe it. Oh, yeah. They, they can wear so thin. It can wear so thin that it breaks off, and I've seen that. But generally speaking, that's not going to happen. And even if a piston breaks, we still don't care because we're throwing it away. You know, we, we throw away 80 pounds of stuff out of these engines. This is a no-compromise engine program. We're not just rebuilding stuff and slapping it together in a few hours and, and replacing only what is worn in that engine. We replace the things that aren't worn. Because the way I look at it, they aren't worn now, but they still have X miles on them, and they were still built by the lowest bidder. So the way I look at it is why I put some new parts in it when – other parts have 50 or 80 or 100,000 miles on them. Now, of course, you get to the point where you're always going to have a crankcase that still is being reconditioned and brought up to spec with Nikki's. It still has X miles on it. Your cylinder head castings still have X miles on them. So because of that, it still needs to be classified as a remanufactured or a rebuilt or a reconstructed engine um, because you can't replace all those things. But the main wear items that will leave you on the side of the road with a broken engine – are the things that we try to replace, um, whether they're worn or not. Well, I was just going to say, I, I hate to use the word inevitable, 
but it's almost like if you buy an M9X generation of the Carrera M96 or M97, you might as well be keeping it on the radar. I, I would think that would be not to say that's going to piss off a lot of people because they think that you can completely avoid it if you take care of it. And, and, and I think you can mitigate it, right? It, but uh, with good well, practices. Well, so this is this is the thing. And, and there's a video series coming from Porsche Club of America. Um, it was something that I set out on because I wasn't feeling well. And some other guys in the group needed to really take this bull by the horns and explain some things. Um, but basically, you know, every engine out there, I don't care what kind of engine it is, gasoline, diesel, two-stroke, four-stroke, every engine on the face of the planet starts to die the day that it's first operated. It is killing and consuming itself the entire time that it's running. Um, just like humans, we start to die the day we're born. Um, so every engine's going to fail. That is inevitable. It's going to happen. Now, the idea is to mitigate the chances of a failure, and you want the engine to actually wear out. With my experience with these engines, I've only seen about five of them wear out ever because usually something breaks sometimes because it was made by the lowest bidder sometimes it's because it just wasn't proven sometimes it was because of the way things were assembled at the factory um or when they were assembled but it will usually break in some manner before it wears out um so you know today most of the guys that come to us the vast majority are like sean they want an elective build because they know it's coming and the main thing is they want to take advantage of it. They want to take advantage of a failure. Failure is opportunity if you look at it that way. If, you, if this is your forever car, if you love this car, if you want to keep this car, then if it fails, you have the chance to make it into something it never was before. And we've created that, right? So um, – you can get more power from it. We can take away those 31 modes of failure. We can take away the chances of it scoring bores. Um, you know, we can get away from drop valve seat problems. We can get rid of all the broken timing chain issues. All the things these engines have had a problem with, we have created a fix for. And we've enhanced them. So, um, and I know that I didn't. I don't bother going on Renlist anymore. I actually had myself banned from there. But, you know, basically, you know, there was a thread that started a couple of weeks ago or something about the dependability of our engines. And a lot of my purchasers were sharing what they had posted over there inside our private Flat Six Innovations group on Facebook. And if somebody was looking for negative information, they certainly did not get it. Um, so, you know, who knows why threads like that pop up, but at the end of the day, failure is opportunity. If you look at it in that manner and like with Sean, his engine didn't fail. Now we don't know if it had more scoring starting or not knowing what I know about those engines, especially the ones from the North, it probably has it. And, and Sean, when it, we take it apart, you know, we'll throw it out there and I'll let you see what it looks like, but we're going to take it and three others apart. Uh, we're just waiting for a little lull and a time to do that. So we've still got to grab the core and then get it back here and then take it apart. Well, and if, so, if you hadn't well, gotten well, 2737 done so fast, I'd know. Because about now, I was going to pull the sump plate and and scope it and see what it looked like. But you you got done too fast. And so 
I uh, lost yeah, my I window. I think this, is, this new program is really cool because in the past, there was a lot of time that people had to wait, deliver the car, and be without the car for a long period of time. This is an incredible, I think it's an incredible move. Oh, I mean, I'm we went astounded. I was going to say, we went from a guy that would normally be on an average, in an average scenario, waiting for an engine for 20 months and doing without his car for five of those 20 months to a guy who got a car back on the road in 11 days. That's incredible. And we did it with no hiccups. It was flawless. There was no problems with anything. Um, that just doesn't happen usually, but we put a lot, of, I put a year into getting to the sale of FSI 2737, because honestly, this is the only one of these sales I'm going to be associated with. And, you know, that's one reason I changed this stuff is because I want out. I want out of the, the business of selling and building engines. I want to develop said engines and I want to oversee uh, the employees that have been with me for 20 years doing that. Um, so this one, Sean, this one was the one where the program that I put together with Charles at LN and Judd, who's going over to the to the LN side, you know, that's this is basically I'm done. We know that everything is in place. We know it all worked perfectly, even the first time around. Those guys can refine it. Um, but you know, going back to the bore scoring thing, Bobby, uh, you know. People always want to hear me say that every one of these engines is going to die of bore scoring. All I can tell you is every one of these engines is going to die of something. It's inevitable. They're all going to fail if they don't wear out, right? Or they're all going to wear out if they don't fail. It's according to which way you look at it. So it's going to die, and that's why people are looking for an elective fix for said failure before it leaves them on the side of the road. And especially with a new program, they don't have to do without the car. For very long at all so sean what's interesting is that you are actually one of the very few people if not the only person that's ever bought one of these engines from us that can truly compare before and after with a car because most of these guys forgot what before was because after took so long to get you see what i'm saying oh yeah so it'll be interesting just to see when we advance through the interview here what you think because you, people usually can't well, judge it like that. Well, I we had a we had a period of nice weather. I actually before Andy picked up the car, I took it out and drove it a good bit, both you know because I wanted to drive it one last time stock, but also just to to make sure I remembered what it felt like as a stock car, so I could do a decent comparison when it came back. So that that was that was part of my thinking. And fortunately, the weather amazingly in Central Ohio was was cooperating with me, so I did get it out for a good run. So that I could feel the difference when I came back. When it came back, well, Sean, tell us. I mean, why flat six innovations? I, I mean, there's a lot of shops out there that could rebuild your car engine. There's the short block program through Porsche that seems to be resurrected now that we're outside the pandemic. Um, but what was it about flat six innovations that? made you consider using so, their engine program so simply because you know they're takes takes the best in the country i mean the i the the porsche short block program never crossed my mind because if i was going to invest in an engine i wasn't going to invest in the stock engine and you know this is where this is where my my motorcycle experience starts to come in 
you know, I've, I've got a heavily modified Harley V-Rod, which Porsche actually collaborated on that engine design. Oh, yeah. I, and, I, that's one of my favorite yeah. Harleys, believe it or not. It's just, when they came out with that bike, yeah. I thought, oh my gosh. But, but it was, I had back in 2009, I had who, um, you know, I collaborated with um, what was then the best V-Rod engine builder in the country, which unfortunately they're, they're no longer in existence. And built they built that engine. I did the spec, but that, you know, in, I still have that bike. I'm doing silly things with nitrous oxide with it. Now it has performed. It has lasted. I can still, I could hop on that bike today if it weren't 29 degrees and ride it for 500 miles. Um, and that was because, you know, I had a really good build with a really good spec done by, you know, at that point, um, the, the place that did it, they, you know, they had built a lot of engines, they blown up a lot of engines. So kind of, you know, not quite to the, the level that Jake and Flat Six Innovations do, but they had done the same thing. They had identified a lot of the failure modes of that engine, and they'd engineered solutions. And those solutions are still holding that engine together today. So, if I was gonna, you know, if I was gonna find somebody to work with to build an engine, I wanted somebody who had, you know, worked through all of that and, you know, built the best engine, you know, the best engine that was possible for these cars. I didn't want something that. You know, five years from now, I was going to be right back where I right back where I started. Oh, absolutely, and and that's I'm just kind of repeating what Jake says. I mean, he's spent yeah. 20 years working this engine and knowing all the things that need to be changed to make yeah. it a better engine. And and I'm biased. I, I, you know, people probably laughing. Yeah, 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 yeah. I am biased because I do work for Flat Six Innovations and Ellen Engineering. Started Ren Renvision together with Jake. But even if I wasn't with them, I would still have to sit back and think, do I want to put an engine back in this car that got me where I'm at right now with the problems that it has, which are the two yeah. biggest problems or the IMS bearing failure and cylinder bore scoring. We brought, if anything, what we've done in the last five years, Jake and I have brought awareness to this problem. Now, some people probably would hate us for that because honestly, I've read it. People want to turn a blind eye to this problem. I'll just drive it injured. And they'll get what they'll get. And I, they say, well, they ask me, what do you think will happen? Well, eventually, you'll start getting check engine lights, misfires. Because my friend, who I call my brother from another mother, his name is Matt Mitchell. I bought his engine. And he bought, he inherited this car from his dad. His dad passed away. And it was one owner, C4S, 2003, beautiful car. And I did a whole video on it for anybody that wants to watch the video. It's called A Porsche Story. And um, he got this car, and he knew that he needed to do the IMS bearing because it had the most problematic single row, the 6204 single row bearing that had the most problems. So he dropped the engine. He has his own shop. He's a very competent guy with engines and stuff. So he dropped the engine took transmission out, put the bearing, new bearing, fresh bearing in the car, put it all back together, put the engine back in the car, was driving it, and he was doing some, I think, auto X, and he started getting bad misfires. He said, how is it possible? We've got brand new coal, uh, coal packs. He's got brand new plugs. Everything's been checked. And he's like you. He was not aware of this problem with cylinder bore scoring. So he's, he started doing a little investigation, Sean, and found out that this this engine, uh, the M9603 engines were very susceptible to the problem. So he, he scoped it, 
sure enough, he had really bad scoring. I have images of that engine, uh, which now is going to be sent to LN. Um, I ended up selling it to a guy uh, that support, it's actually a flat six customer. He's going to resurrect that engine and put it back into another car. So that's going to be exciting to see. But anyway, getting back to your thing. I think everybody wants to know the butt dyno that you've been telling me about. <laughs> you did a butt not yeah. dyno check yep. before. Tell me how it was after. Well, Just, like, and like, we understand like, the whole idea behind butt like, dyno. So. Well, no, like like we were Tell talking about, about earlier though. The the we'll we'll talk about you know on on the on hard throttle in a minute. The the first thing that was the most amazing to me, and I still this is this is the kind of the the bonus you know I've. You know, I've I've had lots of vehicles with with you know motors in various states of tune. Usually, you know, there's a compromise. If you've got something that makes you know makes strong power, you know, strong power up top, usually it's not as you know it's not as streetable. It's not great in parking lots. And, and honestly, a stock M9701 is not the greatest, not the greatest engine, not the greatest engine in a vehicle in a parking lot. It's a little jerky. You know, it's it it doesn't you know it it it's cranky. I guess I, the best way at low speed, the 2737, I mean, you can, you can just about let the clutch out without the accelerator and it'll just kind of put itself along at parking lot speed. I mean, the most amazing thing then, you know, cause I expected, you know, the power the flat torque, you know, all the things that, you know, sitting through Jake's webinar, talking to the whole gang at flat six, I expected all that. What I didn't expect was how well-mannered it is at parking lot speeds. I mean, the car, the, the, that's the amazing thing. So that was the first impression when I, cause uh, Andy dropped off the car and I had a, I had a appointment with a knee surgeon. So we got it, you know, he dropped it. I talked to him, the car was still running. So I just, and the weather was passable. So I hopped in the car and drove it to the, drove it to the knee surgeon, but it was a grand total of 10 miles and it was all, you know, local roads. So I didn't get, didn't get a chance to do anything fun with it, but I was amazed at how much more streetable the car is now you know obviously last sunday we had a little bit of a break in the weather and so i was able to take it out and put it through his paces and you know it is it is incredible at speed you know the the torque builds and you know it's got you know such a flat torque curve the power's there everywhere um you do have to watch watch it because it gets to you know it gets the red line pretty quickly so you have to keep it and you know i haven't gotten it loose yet because it, the roads were a little slick so i was being a little careful and it's a 4s so it takes a little more effort to actually actually start to drift it a little bit but it is it, i mean it's amazing but I, I still i it's funny that you know i've got a you know somewhere in four around 400 horsepower motor now and the most the thing i'm still most amazed with is how good it is at five miles an hour so that's yeah and the thing i'll say about that is because the combo right because yeah. When we do the heads on those engines, we don't want to lose port velocity. It's really easy to get more flow, get more CFM, yeah. and get more CFM at higher lift, right? But we want to keep that air, the airspeed. We want to keep that high velocity down low. So there's a compromise of velocity versus flow. Um, and then the intake modifications and things that could still be added to it. You've, you've got another 40 or 50 horsepower that you could add to this thing later on down the road. If you do uh, the RX 3900 intake, the full induction I'm, system, if you do the I'm carbon air box. Be ready. And, 
<laughs> then you change the cams and 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 do the like that would be a RX thirty nine oh five cam package. So there's other things you can do to it later on down the road. So if you start getting used to it, you can add those. But you will see when you add those, at least the cams, that you're going to lose some of that down low. Um, not not a lot because I I really tried to keep that area under the curves of primary focus. But um, you know most everybody thinks about an engine making this kind of power and they always have a question is will my red line be higher and i have to tell them you don't want it to be higher and it doesn't need to be higher and if anything we're moving the peak horsepower down four to five hundred rpm you don't notice that because it still zings all the way to the red line but if you've got it on a dyno you see that it's making peak power about 6600 um where most of these cars would make peak power right at about seven grand like yours. So, you know, making it a little earlier like that and having bigger bigger breathing capacity. Basically, you know, we went up to 101 millimeter bore size with yours, um, you know, and that makes a big difference in how the heads operate. Uh, and you've done engine work. You understand about making things bigger. An engine's just an air pump. So if you make it bigger, then it's going to get a bigger gulp of air at a lower RPM. So you make peak power sooner. And that's one of the things that makes these engines with the combinations that I've done work so well is because we got the right cam, the right heads, the right compression ratio to match the intake and the exhaust for a car that has a broad linear power curve. Um, and then I don't know if you notice how smooth it is, but that's oh, yeah. the effect of the, the dynamic balancing. You know, people put engines together all the time and they don't balance them. Um, you know, having had a balancer on my floor from CWT Industries, which is the leader in balancing equipment. Randy Neal did my machine over 20 years ago. Um, I've updated it three times with everything he's ever done. I'll tell you. I wouldn't put together a Briggs and Stratton engine that wasn't balanced. And trust me, my daughter races junior dragsters and, you know, we balance engines for those things as well. It's a little single cylinder, uh, you know, Briggs and Stratton. Um, so it makes a difference. Balancing it, makes a difference. And, oh yeah, and people I don't tell believe people that. I tell people that try to get an idea. It's like balancing your tires, your wheels when you get new tires. If you didn't balance those wheels, which everybody probably experienced wheels that weren't balanced correctly, you know what it does for the car. It shakes yeah. you like it's on some kind well, of crack hit or something, you know. That that's another noticeable difference. I mean, just from idle onward, the the you know, and that was one of the things that another one of many things that made me really want this motor was that it was that it was stationary balanced because again, the difference between what left the Porsche factory. And, and I, I said, I said this to Jake a couple of days ago. I remember in one of the webinars I was in, one of the previous owners said, this is the engine that Porsche should have put in the car. And now I understand why he said that because it is, I mean, it, you know, it's the car's more refined. It makes more power. I mean, it is everything that you expect. You, and know, you know, I've been hearing that, that same statement. This is the engine that Porsche should have put in the car. Yeah. I started hearing that building 914 engines 25 years ago is when I heard that about 914s with the things that I was doing with those. So it's funny to go full circle with this from those old cars to these and hearing people that aren't even in the same realm, uh, not even in the same millennium. Uh, talking about the same thing, and it's because of the combination that we put together. Now, 
something I'll tell you about the balancing thing. We didn't just balance that reciprocating mass. We were we balanced the reciprocating and the total rotating masses, the whole entire dynamic mass. But all of these engines of the FSI program, we're replacing the flywheels and we're replacing the clutches. We've always replaced clutches, but over time, especially in the early days, the flywheels were newer. They didn't need to be replaced. Now almost every flywheel out there needs to be replaced, and you can't resurface them. It is not protocol to resurface a dual-mass flywheel, and they never work right when you do it. They chatter and have all kinds of bad behavior. So, you know, when people look at this engine, they need to understand it's not just an engine. You know, it's got all the sensors replaced that are on the engine. Uh, you know, it's got a brand new flywheel and clutch. I mean, that's in some of these cases, that's almost $2,000 worth of flywheel and clutch. But what that means is that we can dynamically balance those parts to this engine and they're going to be good for 100,000 miles. And if somebody ever needs a clutch or a flywheel replaced, we've got all the balance records right there in our CWT balancer. We can pull them up and you can buy a balanced clutch package or a balanced flywheel and clutch package that is still balanced to your engine 10 or 15 or 20 years from now. So, and I've done that. Guys that I balanced something for 20 years ago, they need a clutch, boom. I pull up the specs, I throw my my mandrel in the thing, I match everything up, and there you go. You, you've got match balance it's not exactly 100 percent perfect like it would be if all those parts were still in the machine but nobody's ever noticed a difference um so i think that balance is is performance um you know because even the knock sensors are part of this equation the knock sensors can pick up harmonics that come from imbalance we've seen that i can see it pulling ignition timing it confuses harmonics with detonation in some cases that's how particular the knock sensors are so if you've got a little bit of knock going on and you got harmonics it's going to pull the ignition timing way back so and i know that you've got some experience with tuning stuff and you understand what i'm talking about with that seen yeah i've seen i've, I've seen that in data on my bike where where the knocks the knock sensing kicks in and i watch it pull the timing back so and especially on a Harley where everything is like solid mounted and, and the engines inherently don't run smooth. You know what I mean? So that's where the V rod's a little different. It's because again, Porsche had a hand in the design, so it's smoother, but it's still when you push the, you know, you know, when you push the limits, you start to see some of that and you got to pull back. That's part of the, part of the process. Oh yeah. So uh, Sean, uh, I take it the V rod is your lifetime bike. And this yeah, is a loaded question. Do you see yeah. this car being the same or would you ever get something different? So it's so this is an interesting question because I was actually thinking about this tonight. One of the things that I think is kind of cool about the new FSI engine program. So, you know, the old program, you kept the engine that came with your car. You know, that, you know, that there's, you know, as a car guy, you know, there's something about that. Kind of the one cool thing about the fact that it's now an engine swap is if something happens to the car itself or, you know, maybe I decide in five years, I don't want, you know, I don't want a Cabriolet anymore because I'm getting too old and I don't want my head in the wind all the time, or I want to drive it more in the winter. You know, I could, I could buy another car that takes an M9701 and, you know, talk to my certified installer and swap it again. So I almost feel like, again, I plan on keeping this car, but you never know the thing. The thing I know is I plan on keeping this engine and, It'll probably stay in the car, but I almost feel like the new program gives you 
some interesting options if you do want to do something different down the road because you've still got still got that engine. Well, and, and I've had people I, I, do that. I've had guys that um, would go buy a used engine that just ran, put it in the car, pull our engine out of it, keep it. They might go buy another car that's a different color or a different package or whatever, and they put our engine in it. Or they would buy the new car, take the engine out of the new car, put our engine in the new car, and then put the old engine in the other car. It, we've seen musical engines before. We've had people bring cars back to us to have that done. Um, when there was nothing wrong with the other car, it's just they didn't want it. So, you know, like with you, it'll that engine will flawlessly fit into any 05 to 08 C2S, C4S, you know, 3.8 car. So Targa, anything, it'll bolt in all those. And it it could even go into a base model with a couple of changes. So, yeah. And I don't, I don't plan on anything, but it's, it's kind of neat to have the, have that option and not have to think about I'm going to, you know, I'm going to divorce the car from the engine because I've already made that decision. So it's, it's easy I'll just jump in here and say something here, Sean. Because this topic has come up, the purists don't like to disrupt anything the factory has done. And I totally get people that want to keep a car factory. But if you look at, say, a Carfax, um, it's not uncommon that Porsche dealerships swap the engines out. And I've talked to, I've gone down to Atlanta and talked to these people, and They'll just when they have a severe engine problem, they swap engines out and get another core and put it in there. And, and so there's no such thing as a hundred percent pure car, you know. And even the little well, I'll ex- let me expand on that a little bit. So okay, with with air cooled cars, you know, I think that I tend to keep air cooled engines more along the lines of the way they were from the factory because with the air cooled stuff it's pretty hard to beat the factory in many cases because the engineers were still in charge. The accountants hadn't taken over. You started seeing the accountants take over more with the 993. Um, you know, people love the 993, but it's one of my less favorite air-cooled cars. I typically like the G-body cars. Um, you know, the the Carreras up to 88, 89 is kind of where I, I think the sweet spot was. 964 started getting a little bit too much out there. Like they were trying to put... 50 pounds of stuff in a five pound sack. You know, they didn't re re-engineer the car the way they did with the 993. But, you know, with these water cooled cars, very, very few people are concerned with engine serial numbers because so many cars don't even have the right serial number logged down from the factory. The factory didn't keep track of it. You know, when you hook up a factory Porsche tool or even an auto logic to these cars, it'll tell you in the in the basic information what the engine number is supposed to be that's in the ECU and you go look at the engine number that's in the car, even on cars that still have the Cosmoline on the engine has never been out and it doesn't match. Um, you know, it's like it was never right from the factory. They just did not keep good records just the way that, you know, the VIN number records can say that an engine has a dual row IMS bearing, but it has a single row. Um, they didn't keep good records. That's completely different than what it was with the air cooled cars. They knew everything about the air cooled cars right down to the, you know, limited slips and, and everything being accurate. Um, but people are not really interested with keeping the original engines in these cars. That's one reason why this program that we're doing now 
is basically a swap-out program uh, that allows us to fill an order in 10 or 12 days, and people don't care. The only guys that do are the guys that have an anniversary car, you know, the 04 anniversary cars. You know, if you've got any of the factory X51 cars, obviously, uh, you know, a GT2, a GT3, obviously those numbers matching matter. But, you know, the anniversary cars with those, I mean, I've taken on a couple of those still even as the new program has taken off you know the, the the limited edition stuff where somebody wants to keep their engine serial number i actually have a third category for those and i might pick one out every now and then and i might take on an engine and build that engine that belongs in that car if it's the right person and the right car and the right application so that guy can keep his original serial number but i'm not going to do that if it's just a guy that has a c4s or just a c2s or just a targa i might consider it with a targa that's a 4s targa because it's a rare car um but you know if it's a a, a rare situation where it's a early car uh, it's something special about it then it's important to keep those numbers matching but if it's a car like Sean's people don't care and it's because so few of these cars still have the original engine anyway um, you know, especially the early ones and, and, uh, and then toward the tail end of the production, there was also issues that led to a lot of engines being replaced under warranty. So that's my thoughts on the, the matching numbers thing. I think it's important air-cooled stuff, but with these, nobody cares. Well, I, I bought, I bought the car to drive, not to put in a bubble and stare at it. So I, I don't need the numbers to match. And like you said, you know, with gt2 a gt3 something that's you know that's very low numbers i i still think if i had a gt3 i'd be driving it every chance i got but <laughs> well uh sean the last question i have for you is tell us about with the new program what did you experience with purchasing uh the engine <laughs> so what was, i mean was all the good about it even so 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 the funny the funny part is again right before i found out that 2737 was going to be available when it was, you know, I was, as I said, I was planning, I was going to pull the sump plate on mine. I was going to, I was going to scope it. And so I'd ordered a couple of things from LN and, you know, I ordered magnetic drain plugs some some washers, a couple other things. And honestly, buying that engine was no different than aside from being a little more money. Um, no, no different than buying, you know, magnetic drain plug and a couple of washers. I mean, it, you know, I, the link went live. Fortunately, I was ready. And because I'd already bought some stuff from LN, I knew how the site worked. And I, I laid my plans. I was, I was actually in my office at the time, but I had the iPad I'm talking to you on right now sitting next to me all up, had two or three, two or three tabs with the LN site on it with the link to the engine. And I was refreshing. The engine actually went, I think the engine went live 40 some seconds later than the actual top of the top of the hour or whatever the time was supposed to go live. Cause I was there and watching it, but you know, <laughs> I, I clicked the button, put down my deposit and got, you know, then I got the, got the email from the one guy at LN and took care of the, took care of the rest of the funds. And I was actually, you know, trading, you know, trading messages with Judd about certified installers because the only, the only certified installer in the state of Ohio is, is Craftworks. And the guy, the guy there is really nice. He and I had actually talked when Jake first announced this program but he's also a one-man shop and has a pretty wicked backlog. He sports a lot of track guys. And he said, you know, if I'm, if I'm in the middle of somebody's build for a track car, I've, I've committed to have them ready for track season. And again, having friends that have raced, I understand that. So, you know, I was talking to Judd about, about options and, 
you know, we talked about Atlanta Speedworks, um, but then also he mentioned that, you know, Andy up at Andy Speed and Suspension in Moments, Illinois was pretty much co-resident with LN and that that, you know, that would be a good option also being closer to me. And so I, Andy gave me a call. Um, I think it was the Saturday before, actually the Saturday before the engine went live. I uh, talked to him a little bit. I think he was driving a trailer back from somewhere and we, we seemed to gel well together. So ended up, ended up, um, asking him to do it and he took it on and because of you know him moving race car trailers around a lot as Jake mentioned earlier he happened to be down in Georgia to pick up a trailer to bring it back up um, bring it back up for repair so he was able to stop at flat six get my engine come swing through to my house I got to actually see my engine wrapped in wrapped in its uh, wrapped in its uh, shrink wrap and and load my car up and then it went up to his place and 11 days later it came back so it was a, I mean, it was a flawless experience. I also think it was probably the single most expensive thing I've ever bought in a web transaction. Uh, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that was a, I didn't, I mean, I knew it was going to sell quick because, you yeah. know, the M9701 designation like yours is the hottest commodity, you know, and, and luckily we just got another handful of low mileage cores for those so you we could basically have an engine program and only support that one designation there's that much demand for it just for that you know carrera s 05 to 08 so but i knew it was going to sell quick and i was outside like doing something on a tractor or something i didn't even realize it was three o'clock yet and charles sends me a text and it's like one minute after three and he says it's gone. And I'm like, what's gone? And he goes, the engine. And I said, damn, it was that quick? And he goes, yeah. I'm like, okay, well, I started doing my old air-cooled engines this way, selling them this way. And the quickest one of those it sold was like 14 minutes. And I thought that was crazy. Um, and uh, But to sell it in, in a minute was pretty nuts. And then I think there was 12 guys right behind you that are probably pretty pissed off that they didn't get it, <laughs> but they're good. But they got another chance because we're, yeah. um, I've got another one in the works. It'll be done in about a month or so, yeah. something like that. And just yesterday, uh, we started on FSI 2755 or sorry, 2799 is the next one. And that's a M9605, which is for a 05 to 08 base Carrera. Um, with, that was originally a three, six, we're taking that to a four liter stage two. Um, uh, so actually it's going to make the same power as yours, even though it was a three, six to begin with. So, and, and in some cases we take those three sixes and make even more power than we do with something starting with a three, eight, um, just because the heads are a little bit more favorable for what we're doing. So that one's in the works. And if anybody out there is watching this, got a 05 to 08 base Carrera, you know, if you hadn't got an application in for that, go ahead and get you an application started. If you're if you're wanting an engine, you could have a car back in eleven days. <laughs> yeah, I just looked. I got my uh, got my confirmation email back from LN. It was two oh one and nine seconds Central Time, so three oh one oh nine. And like I said, the it didn't go live till thirty eight or forty seconds after after three Eastern. So I uh, yeah. I jumped fast. <laughs> well, it paid off. So yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, Bobby says something about a battery. What's what? Oh, you got a battery's going bad. Oh, okay, his mic battery died. So we got to talk. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I'm blown away by how smooth everything went when we built the engine. How smooth yeah. Andy got it all done. 
um, you know, and then the weather held you off and obviously your mom's not been in the best health and stuff. And so it was, it was kind of crazy that you had all that stuff going on, but it just worked out. And, um, you know, I think that, that just proves that all the preparation we put into the program is really working out. And, you know, this period of time here where we we're finishing up the old backlog from the old program and we're doing the, you know, starting this new program it's like we're ending one thing and we're going right into the other one. And it's just being slick as glass, you know, because of preparation I'm, and uh, having a good team. So I'm interested to see what this looks like when you're, you know, your other engine builders are starting to build for the new program and you've got, you know, one or two, you know, two dropping at the same time rather than one at a time. That will be interesting. Yeah. Well, the thing is, you know, we're, we've cut down the production by about 40 to 50 percent across the board because there's certain cars we're just not working with anymore i mean you know the early boxsters really any boxster up to 07 you know there's just so many of those cars on the market we don't really get inquiries for them so we're not supporting those you know basically we're only building five engines we're doing the early cars with the three four cars because there they, there's demand for those now people really like those early cars i'm one of those people so we're building those to to three eights and i'm even doing those now to a four two um with with the early stuff you know with some stroker stuff that i've been playing with for a while and different cams and you know new head uh, profiles and then of course those things big time so we're making those doing those into three eights uh i typically don't really do one to a four liter but i'm probably going to do some to four liter um and then of course the m9605 and the m9701 like yours so that's pretty much what we're trying to support because that's what everybody wants you know that's what those are the cars people really have a love affair with they're really into those cars and um you know, and they're holding value. Obviously, the the nine nine seven one is holding its own. Nine nine six prices dropped some. The nine nine seven prices, I think, for all the reasons we talked about earlier, are going to stay up there, and they're even going to get the more analog. so. They're exactly last of the and analog people, car. Yeah, people people don't appreciate that till it's gone. You know, um, and, and I think that's going to happen with all this stuff. The more analog it is. If it can still be made modern and still have good creature comforts, it's going to be more in demand. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, that's the thing about building these engines is we're going to be doing three a month. Basically, that's the way things are scheduled, and we don't have a set schedule. It's just like we build what we want when we want. And of all the builders, we each have our own thing we like, like to do, you know, according to how long somebody's been here or what they really want to do. I try to put a builder and assign them to a build that they want to build like brent has been with me for 25 years started out with air-cooled stuff there's certain engines with these water-cooled cars that he just doesn't like to work with and i get it he hates nine alpha ones i'm with him i don't like to build them so i don't i try not to give him a nine alpha one just because hey you know it's not like it's not what he wants he likes these cars uh and every now and then he still does something air-cooled but i think that matters that the builder especially in my world where we don't have multiple people doing this work. This is something that's unique because, you know, it takes about 80 hours to process one of these engines and we don't have a clock or a calendar in the shop, but basically it's two work weeks for one individual to do this because when I assign a builder to something, that builder takes it apart. He processes everything. He does the teardown. He takes the photos and then he's the one that's assigned to it until it leaves as a completely rejuvenated engine. 
Um, and it's it's one pair of hands, it's one mind doing it, and it's full accountability, it's full responsibility. So I want those people to do what they like to do because it makes them better at what they do. Um, so, you know, doing it that way where you don't have multiple people working on things and you're not just taking a bunch of pieces and a pile of crankshafts over here and a pile of rods over here, you're actually building that same core engine that came apart and you're just making it newer and better. Um, I mean, that is a that to me is what really characterizes the flat six difference. And and we're not changing that. That's all the same. Honestly, you got the engine you got is actually more advanced than if you would have been part of the old program. And it was obviously done quicker than if you would have been part of the old program. If you were part of the old program, you still wouldn't have your car back. You wouldn't have your car back until June at this point um, when that's the end of the line. So I, I think that it's going to be unique when we have these things scheduled so three of them are getting done a month. They won't ever be three of them done at the same time because we're, we got them kind of staggered. But yeah, when 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 one goes live and gets sold, and then the next one goes live, it'll be for a different car. Um, and the next one goes live, that'll be for a different car, and then it'll kind of all start over again. That's kind of the way we've got it staggered. Um, but luckily, I've done my part of that. That's going to be up to Judd and Charles and everybody at flat at LN. <laughs> so you know, all I've got to do is make sure things get taken apart, things get put together, and they get a good stamp of approval when they're done. It'll be fun to watch, though. <laughs> yeah, especially well, because it, I have it was mine. it was it was pretty <laughs> ironic yesterday to hit February one when I just had basically just zipped the zipper on the old program one year exactly before that. Um, and, you know, I wanted to have the first engine for the new program done at the first of 2023. It got done. It got sold. It got installed quicker than I thought. And, you know, now I'm just trying to build like one of these new engines for the new program a month, just one a month until we get to that end of the line and things start getting hammered out. We've already got the other ones in the pipeline. I've got a schedule of what's going to get built and when they're going to get built. And um, they're all stage twos. And if it's a stage two based on M9605 or M96, M9701, it's going to be a four liter. Um, I'm going to throw some four ones in there too uh, at some point. So so we have one question from uh, YouTube from a James Ward. He's got a 2005 997 uh Carrera S. So I'm assuming that's the M9701. It is. And he's believe it or not, he bought this car in 2007 from the original owner and he's saying he's never heard of cylinder boards going until now. <laughs> and he's like well, how long has this thing lasted? And I've said, you know, this was kind of considered the the one number one mode of failure. And it seemed like that the whole IMS bearing failure thing kind of overshadowed a bore scoring for so many years because it was such a hot topic. But the bore well, scoring so, thing is so this. I'll expand on that a little bit. And it's funny because we've got another Flat Six Innovations owner, James Ward. He's actually active in the Flat Six Innovations owners lounge. So I thought that's who you're gonna be talking about. Um, oh, I don't know. You know, but, I don't know. I don't know if it's the same guy, but it's interesting. He's he's just asking, you know, when did board scoring become a thing? I purchased my 2005 997S as a second owner in 2007. I had never heard of it. Well, so. and, and the thing is, a lot of people had IMS bearing failures and never knew what an IMS bearing was either. Um, at the same time, you know, when did it become a thing? From the very beginning, you know, we were seeing cars that were failing under warranty when his car were new, was new. So, 
Um, you know, it's been a thing since the beginning. Uh, obviously, a lot of things added up that helped to create the issues. Ethanol fuel is one of them. Um, you know, people that uh, also as a blocks got closer to, to the end of production. Um, there was some things that happened with the crankcases that we've seen traits where, um, you know, maybe the quality control had gone down some. They just weren't able to keep track of things as much. The 9-alpha-1 engine was coming in, and they knew that. Um, but, yeah, he can he can just Google bore scoring, or he can go to our Renvision Focus on Bore Scoring video series, and he'll learn everything he needed to know about it. But I will say today, and ever since 2019, since January of 2019, Eighty percent of the of the failures that were reported to us that resulted in subsequent engine builds came from bore scoring. Period. It is a number one, the biggest failure for all of these engines, and and that does not take away the nine alpha one either. We're seeing the bore scoring nine alpha one. I had a a twenty sixteen uh, GT four. Sorry, twenty sixteen Cayman uh, reported today with bore scoring. And I sent you a voicemail from one last week, Bobby, a GT4 that had bore scoring. So um, it's not widespread yet, but those cars are not old enough yet. Uh, some of them are getting there, but it's, it, we're starting to see it pop up more. And um, same thing with Cayennes. Cayenne engines oh, had I'm bore scoring. Say, some of the first, yeah, some of the first bore scoring we heard, like the ticking sound, the first time yeah. that Charles and I really put together that ticking sound – that was bore scoring in the early stages was from a Cayenne engine. The first engine I ever saw that had classic bore scoring was a Cayenne. Um, and then it's the same exact problem through all of these engines. Um, and I think until you get up to the 992 when Porsche started using Subabore, which is the plasma spray, which is our next generation of these engines that we've already got developed. We're just not releasing it because there's no reason. It's way expensive. But we've been working for almost five years at this point now to get it perfect and it is perfect at this point we don't really have to do anything else to it except for wait to the point where nicosil is outlawed and we know that's going to happen because it's plating processes um but until you get to a car that's new enough to have sumovore cylinders from the factory these problems are going to continue we know it's going to happen oh yeah there was a guy that had um i don't know that he had authority to do it but he he was a a service tech at a Porsche dealership, and I used to enjoy watching his YouTube channel. And I don't, I don't think that it was a. They had a big deal with him recording his working on these cars because it was always very positive until he started finding Porsche scoring on the Cayennes. And I bet, I guarantee you, they, they Porsche headquarters sent him a letter saying, "Take it down," because <laughs> they don't want that getting out. That is, I mean, anybody that's in the business doesn't want negative publicity. But he was scoping a, a Cayenne, and it was scored all to hell. It was it was bad, and it it wasn't very long after that that his whole channel was taken down. So I'm sure that what was uh, originally positive when he started, you know, and it was the same thing. He was getting misfires, and it was a tick in which first he was thinking, well, maybe it's the direct injection, uh, the direct fuel injectors making the noise. But then when he well, started probing it, then do. he realized it wasn't coming from there. It was coming from deeper down into the cylinder head and so he's like uh oh so he pulled the plug and scoped it sure enough it was all scratched up it was bad yeah well in bore scoring you know obviously is something that 
DFI injectors can have that sound. A loose spark plug can have that sound until it gets bad. Um, but the one thing that you just don't see is lifters causing the noise, but they have the rhythmic tone and the, the right rhythm of a bad lifter. And, and it, it fooled me. The very first time it fooled me. But now if somebody calls me and says, I've got a lifter making a noise, boom, dude, no, you don't. I've had one bad set of lifters since about 2009. That's 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 it. And a friend of ours, uh, John Herzler, RS Motorworks in Atlanta, uh, Alpharetta, actually, he um, just had a 991 come in, and I was talking to him about it, and he actually did find that it had six bad exhaust lifters, and we would have swore it had bore scoring, but that one actually did have bad lifters. Um, and I told him, I was like, even though you found those bad lifters, do not trust them. Go ahead and scope those cylinders from the bottom side while you got it out of the car. Don't think that you've just got one problem because you might not. You may have a compound issue. You you might have thought you found the problem, but you got to quantify and make sure that you found the problem. Um, but we can sit here and talk all night about bore score. Oh, but, honestly, you know, I was... we'll see it. We'll see if his engine has it when we get it apart. I, you know. <laughs> It probably at least has lost the skirt coating, which is stage one of bore scoring. You know, if it loses the skirt coating on the pistons, it's going to end up scoring the bores because then you've got an aluminum piston against an aluminum silicon cylinder, alucil cylinder, locusil cylinder, whatever it is, whatever generation you are. But you're metal to metal with no dissimilar wear material between the two. And once that flakes off, that dissimilar wear material flakes off, you're going to have bore scoring happen from that point. And we've even found some of these blocks, and you're going to see this when PCA releases that bore scoring series. We've seen blocks that were destined to die because down at the bottom of the cylinders where it never had a piston run against the surface, never had a ring touch it, the surface finish was wrong. Measuring it a millionth of an inch, putting it under Mark Malberg's crazy, super-sensitive microscopes and looking at those surfaces – with crazy trace boss equipment that he's got from a you know, digital metrology standpoint, it was d- determined with some of these blocks that he saw at LN, it was going to fail no matter how it was serviced, no matter how it was driven, no matter if the piston fell first or not. The surface finish of that cylinder was wrong from the factory. And because no piston had ever touched it in those areas, it was very clear to see that. So that's going to open a lot of eyes to this um, about what, what has caused this and there's different things that cause it a lot of different causes a lot of different effects at the end of the day it costs the same amount to make sure it's not going to happen again well i was really impressed honestly you know i've been down to the porsche dealerships in atlanta and watch them and um you know they use the the scanners and the diagnostic stuff a lot but i was really impressed this guy had the old school mechanics ears and started just probing around and it's like Dude, all that technology he has access to, and he's just using old school stuff. And he honed in on it, and then he pulled the plug and did the put the camera down in there. And I'm thinking, still, dang, I wonder if he watched our video. All, all this technology, <laughs> it's still gasoline in a spark plug. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean that. And, and the thing is, sometimes guys that that use all these scan tools and all these diagnostic methods. They can't work their way out of a cardboard box with a sledgehammer. I've said it before. You know, to the to the modern technician, if it doesn't have a diagnostic trouble code, they can't figure it out because they're not mechanics. 
They don't want to be called mechanic because they think it's a derogatory term. However, they should aspire to be a mechanic as well as a technician. There is a big difference. Uh, in, in the world of racing, you don't hear about a racing technician. They're still racing mechanics. And um, I don't consider mechanic to be a derogatory term like a lot of people do. Um, but we are very much mechanical, much more than we are technicians. Um, uh, and I, I think a, it takes I got a both. question here, too. Mm-hmm. Mike Phillips, are we just waiting for bore scoring to happen to our M96 engine? And I'll jump in here and just say it's not all M96 engines. You got to know which ones that are more prone to cylinder bore scoring. Jake, do you want to elaborate? Because I don't know well, if this guy I mean, is a Boxster owner. I don't know if he's a Carrera owner. But I would think that if you're a Carrera owner, you need to keep this on the radar. Well, this is the thing I'll say, and do not take this wrong. But if you are the guy that drew the lottery and one of your six cylinders is like some of the cylinders that Mark Malberg measured at, at LN Engineering when they were there doing the studies with his all of his crazy equipment that nobody else has, if you got that cylinder you are waiting for it to happen there is not a damn thing that you can do to keep it from happening because it was a birth defect it's just like my daughter was born with a spinal birth defect that she's having surgery for on monday and she had surgery for it when she was one day old two days old um but it's a birth defect of the engine and in that case you're waiting for it to be a problem just like some people are born with birth defects that affect their heart, and they don't know about it till later in life, they were born with it. It's going to affect their life in some way. So if you're that guy, yeah, you got it. Is everybody that guy? No. But you could change the oil. You could do anything you want to. You could drive the thing as much as you want or as little as you want. If that surface finish was wrong from the factory, it does not have the proper surface finish to last as long as the other cylinders would and some of those blocks every cylinder was bad well and so, i'll jump in here and say you know when you say m96 for example jake and i were just talking about these again the turbo engine the gt2 and the gt3 have nicosil plated cylinders and they're not prone to cylinder bore scoring no well, the reason we use nicosil no. i mean all the good engine programs in this world that are respected in this industry use Nicosil. The guys that use iron are all about getting an engine done quick and cheap, period. I don't care what they say. That's what leads to it. They don't want a job to set their shop very long. They would rather compromise something and put an iron sleeve in it that's probably going to slip and move or not wear well or sound like a small diesel or whatever the case may be. But everybody who's respected and has earned respect uses Nicosil. Well, he has a 99 Carrera, so a Mark One, five chain. So, so it's probably less apt to do it, but that engine also, if it according to if it was built in '98 or not, could have had other issues. That era is the era where the factory burned down, right? So, if you go to the December '08 uh, issue of Excellence Magazine, Jim Pasha's first really went over our engine program in that technical series in that magazine. And he talked about the factory burning down that, that at Colvin Schmidt that made the blocks and how Porsche had to put engines in brand new cars that had been fixed 
because they did not have brand new blocks because the factory burned. So they took a bunch of blocks that needed repairs, and they repaired them and kept the assembly line going. A lot of those didn't make it any time at all. They failed early, and and there was reports where some of them were failing like 100 at a month were being replaced. And that was something Tony Callis had, had post, posted to me when we were doing classes together uh, from a dealer perspective. Um but almost all of those that had a problem already failed, right? They failed early on because they were big problems, and they did manifest really fast. So now 99s are something we don't really see they, that they score because those pistons uh, basically had the best skirt coating on them. The later pistons had like a plastic film that was the, that had a, a ferro print, you know, and they were they were some of the worst, but. Don't get me wrong. You could have a, a 99 that had a bad surface finish, and it could have the good pistons with a good skirt coating on them, and it's still going to fail, right? But but that the M9603 from the 36 on up, that's the ones that have the biggest problems. And if you so, want a box, if you want a car that is never going to score bores, we we I, I seriously have not ever seen an early Boxster score bores. They have different pistons in them, and they're a cast piston. They they use a different surface finish as far as the skirt coating goes. Everything's different, and they do not score bores. I'm talking, you know, all the way up. The the Boxster really didn't start to score bores till 07 when it got the same engine as the Cayman S, the M9721 in 07 and 08. Till then, you, it's absolutely unheard of. I have hundreds of Boxster pistons, and they all look perfect. You know, Boxster blocks, yeah, the 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 uh, cylinders will go out around, and they need to be sleeved with Nicosil, and they need the cylinders replaced because they go out around, but they do not score. It just doesn't happen. And uh, I'll just jump in here and say, too, for those that like the 987, the Bayes 27 is the engine you want. I know people say, oh, less power. But those are they don't shown, break. They, I'm they telling you, the, the 2.7, any generation of the 2.7 just doesn't break. And, and we get like one phone call a year from a guy that has a 2.7 base Boxster engine that failed. That's it. Uh, and it was that way when those cars were newer. Um, but they are the absolute best engine. I was talking to Lee Jenkins at Hartech. We share stuff back and forth all the time. Even though we're competitors, we still share notes. And and we're very friendly competitors, and we we help people. And he's like, yeah, man, we don't see two sevens fail in the UK either. It just doesn't happen. It's the best combination. And the weird thing is, it's a bastard. If you look at it, it's got the seventy eight stroke of like a three four nine nine six would have, or a, a three two Boxster S would have, and then it's got an eighty five millimeter bore size, which was basically the bore size of the two five Boxster. And he kept that all the way through the end of 08 with the base model cars. So, you know, it's a real smorgasbord of what they used and everything else. But it's the best engine. The only thing that takes them out is seriously an IMS bearing. That's it. Nothing else takes those engines out. And, and we used to build those for Grand Am because that's the that was the engine that Grand Am basically had you know brought into the program where you know if you wanted to race a, a Cayman or a Boxster in Grand Am whatever it was according to what generation it was um, that was the engine that we used and we would buy brand new ones and take them straight apart and they just even even tracking them three hours at a time in endurance racing with no 
no oil starvation bolt-ons at all. You give them some extra bearing clearance, and they wouldn't fail. So, um, David's got a question. David Pickering, he says, does the higher mileage of cars play any role in bore scoring? No. Nope. I mean, I've, we see cars with 15,000, 18,000 miles on them. Uh, Bobby, that GT4 that I sent you the message about, that guy, he had 31,000, I believe. Uh, um, never took never took it to the track. It, bore scoring is not prejudiced at all. It doesn't matter what oil you've used. It doesn't matter what fuel you've used. If you're going to have it, you're going to have it. Especially, but as a general rule, blocks. as a general rule, we want it's good to exercise these cars regular. It's yeah, good to be them, instead of parking them in the garage and and walking out to the garage and looking at them and blow them a kiss. It's actually good to actually get it out of the garage. Wouldn't you say, any, Sean, we need to drive these things instead of... Oh, yeah. I, I mean, that breaks like my that. heart to know these people that are 20,000-mile cars sitting in the garage and no telling what's going on inside. We got in a big debate over oil um, today, oil debates. What can you do? And the whole debate was over, should you change the oil before you put these cars in storage? Now, I am no oil specialist, but the guys that I have listened to, Lake Speed Jr., would advise that people that have the M9X generation of engines, if you don't drive it during the winter months, it's good to, to get the oil that you've been using through the driving months out of there and put fresh oil, let it circulate, put it in storage, and then when you get it out of storage, drive it and as, as, as soon as possible put fresh oil and i'm sure jake has a more stricter guidelines for his engines but that's what i remember but it's like why would why would you need to do that this i mean how can oil go bad just sitting well in it, an engine? well that's you you have had to understand that you've had to gather the data and you've had to need to support these cars when they come out of storage, I hate storage. I urge everybody to drive the car, no matter what kind of scenario you've got as far as your operating environment. You're going to have at least one or two dry days or a week of dry days, accumulative across the winter. You know, find that dry day and take the car out and let it stretch its legs some. You know, that that is what I tell people all the time because in March, April, May, when these cars start coming out of storage, when you've built a couple thousand engines for these cars and you've got people going back for years and years, you start getting the messages. I took my car out of storage and I took my car out of storage and you learn that storage is evil. And we've been able to do the studies over time. And I've actually had some scenarios where I would have customers across the country that I would say, hey, I don't want you to store your car this year if you, unless you absolutely have to. I want to send you some oil for free, put it in the car, and let's run it. I would find another customer that really want, needed to store his car, and I would say, okay, I'm going to send you some oil. I want you to run this oil and then store the car, and then don't change it after storage, and I want to get a sample. I'd do the same thing with another customer. Say, look, run this oil, store the car, and then change the oil right after it comes out of storage. I did this for like five years. And I gathered the information. 
and you look at the the oxidation levels, you look at everything about the oil, the viscosity, the fuel intrusion, you look at everything about it, and the cars that were stored and had oil setting in them during storage, and that oil was not changed right afterwards, always looked better. Always, sorry, always looked worse. And then you have the situations where guys would change the oil before storage and then almost immediately after with just a couple hundred miles, and those were the best over and over and over again. But the guys that exercised the car over the winter was the best of all because they kept the thing exercised. So I do I do work for uh, Mr. Collier, Miles Collier at Revs Institute, and they have over 100 cars that are on display there of all kinds. The first 550 Spider, I mean, you name it. And uh, they, I was talking to Scott today, the curator there, and they have a massive protocol for exercising their cars. I mean, they go out and exercise 917s, 910s, 908s, the first 550 Spider, um, McLaren F1s. The Everything that is in REVs is not just a museum. It is a automotive research facility. So everything there gets raced. They take these cars out and race them. They take these cars out and exercise them at the airport next door. Um, and so they'll take a car out. They change fluids. They exercise it. They put it back in back in the gallery, whatever it is. It is a never-ending, nonstop protocol to keep these cars healthy. And they know if the car sets there and it doesn't get operated and it doesn't have the oils changed and it doesn't have anything, the car goes to hell. I've got five cars in a museum right now in North Georgia. And I went up there two, three weeks ago, and I cranked all my stuff up and checked it all out, and it was all good. But I need to go rotate those cars out, bring them home, service them, drive them, and then give him a few more cars. Um, so I practice what I preach for that. But it's important that you keep oil and, and fluid circulated in any machine. Doesn't matter if it's a car or not. Sounds good. Well, uh, we're coming up on the two-hour mark. And I uh, just want to thank everybody. Uh, out there um, that have tuned in to Renvision tonight, and please subscribe. It's free, and all that's going to do is that we're not going to come after you. Nobody from Google trying to hunt you down. All it's going to do is give you notifications, so when we go live, it'll alert you and alert you on new content. So everybody says that has a YouTube channel, like and sub subscribe. But it, it it is it is important. And if you really like us, you can become a member and to get access to a lot of Jake's exclusive videos uh, that are not available to the general audience. Uh, so, Jake, if you don't have anything else, so you want to wrap this thing up? Yeah. So, Sean, there's just one more question. What about this process would you change if, if there was anything that, that needed to be changed? And, I mean, and I'm asking you honestly, because it, you were a beta tester, you know, anybody that was going to push that button first was going to be the beta tester. What do you think we can do to make this better? That's tough. I mean, I think the process is awesome. The, the fact that, and I don't know if you plan to do any of this, I, I'm assuming you're not going to, as you, as you ramp up to two or three engines a month, but you know, the video, the videos you did, the, you know, videos as the engine was coming along, those were phenomenal being able to see it coming together, um, you know, see what was going into it. I, I honestly can't think of anything that I would change about the process. It, it was, it was really easy. 
you know, obviously you have to have your, have to have your finances ready to go because it's not a small purchase, but it was a, it was a great process. I mean, there's, there's nothing, nothing I can really think of. And again, the, the, the team at LN, you know, immediately, you know, within a couple hours after, after I put my deposit down and got my confirmation, you know, I was contacted by them and, you know, we took care of everything we needed to, you know, but I can't think of anything I'd change. It was, it was really good. There's at least one guy out there screaming, make it free, make it free, give away. Well, <laughs> I'm sure the, the three or four guys I know that, would, that really wanted that engine, I'm, I'm sure they they probably would like some things changed. Because, oh, I know. Because I, I, everybody's driving around faster, worried but... about this. That That's the problem with these, these failures, that they really do, in some ways, kind of steal the joy. I, I guess that's a, the, the bad thing. It's kind of like when you go to the doctor, you really don't want to hear what the doctor has to say. You know, you just kind of want to just hope he's everything's good. But when you say, well, we got this, please don't tell me. You know what I mean? And it's like when you have, when I had the car with the uh, uh, 6204 bearing that was so bad, I couldn't stop thinking about it because I knew people I had read accounts enough to say, you know, I really need to be smart about this thing and get this bearing out of here and get a fresh, you know, the IMS solution in this car. And, and eventually that's what I did. And I missed that car, by the way, for the record, I do miss that car. And that but, car is, see, I won't I get into that car that. because the person that owned that car now probably listening, <laughs> but I was going to say, Bobby, you know, the way that you ended up with your car is like failure is opportunity. You're Cayman, right? So, I mean, because that a shop misdiagnosed it as having an engine failure, and then the car came to me, and then the guy had given up on it and didn't want to fix it, and I diagnosed that it actually just had a bad air oil separator, and the other yeah. shop tested that and said that the air oil separator was good. Well, I was talking about, but they the, didn't uh... use, but they didn't use it as a in a proper manner. So then I do a quick test, bypass the air oil separator, block it off where it's out of the equation, whether it's failed or not. It's smoking like a freight train. I drive the car five miles, the smoke clears up. I bring it back throw a manometer on the crankcase, hook the AOS back up, prove that it's wrong or bad. We throw a AOS on it, and you've been driving the car, what, for three years? Something like that? Two yeah, and a half? So, uh, Sean, I'm a glutton for punishment, man. I, <laughs> I was I was talking about the uh, 2002-996. Um, I know, but I was just trying to explain yeah. while we were talking about failure as opportunity. Oh, yeah, absolutely. How absolutely. you ended up with a car, and it's because a shop that was actually a specific Porsche shop misdiagnosed oh, yeah. one of the biggest things that happens to these engines and a uh, guy lost his car over it and then bobby ended up with it well the thing is is uh you know you love these cars so much for the, what they're they do well right but you can't help but say gosh you know when, when these little nitpicky things that go on with, we joked last time we had a you know i think maybe when we had our our group meeting here on, on zoom, we were joking about all the little things that go like the key fobs. It just drives you nuts. It's like, why can't they make a decent key fob? You know what I mean? $500. No. Give me a break, a little plastic I, thing. And it's such a common old, problem. It drives me nuts. So it's little things like that. Were nice. <laughs> you know, yeah. but when they are working, they're really great cars. They really are. There's nothing that can bring a smile. I, I mean, when you come, I grew up in the South, so we, it's all muscle cars. 
though, when you drive one of these things for the first time, you really get a feel of what the design is all about and the experience is all about. So I totally get it, wanting to make it the very best, Sean, that you can make it so that you'll have to enjoy this car for as long as you, you can. And then again, if you get something else, more power to you, put that engine in the next vehicle and you'll be good. Sure. You know, I, th I think that, you know, I'm kind of, uh, the Cayman was, is, is automatic. I think that when I say that I missed the 2002 is fully manual car, it didn't have traction control, none of that post, uh, none of that stuff. My, my, my O3996 had all the Porsche stabilization and stuff. And, um, and I got to 2002, Sean, I almost lost control of it. And unfortunately I sold it to a really nice guy that, uh, ended up having an accident in that car and i don't know if it's because that he maybe was expecting traction control or something like that. but i almost lost it too because i was going around the corner a little too hard and it started swinging around on me and i was like uh oh you know <laughs> due to this number <laughs> i was like goodness gracious scared the fool out of me but um you know anyway thank you so much jake and thank you sean um unless there's anything else you want to talk about but it's funny though that like like with the AOS, we could talk. We do a whole other rincast on the AOS and all that because of such a com another common thing that uh, people will fight. You know the smoke, and then you know they don't realize. I mean, a lot of times they don't. They think it's something else, and then you know they don't even know how to use the manometer. But we've done a video on that any anyway. By the way, for for those that want to see, you can go on our channel, and we've done a whole thing on how to test your uh the health of your uh aos but um jake thank you man is there anything else that you want to talk about before we no that's it i just want to say that uh 27 fsi 2799 i'm doing videos tomorrow just like what sean was talking about we're in the process of prepping that one getting everything vapor honed and cleaned up it'll be uh spotless and spick and span all the way around and then ultrasonically cleaned so i'm going to start doing videos tomorrow so anybody that's on that uh m9605 the 05 to 08 base 997 uh notification list not wait list but notification list we'll start getting videos probably tomorrow or monday uh about this next engine and it'll be done in two weeks something like that uh so if you guys are on that wait list or if you want to be part of that notification list then go ahead and, and send a message at uh, flat6innovations.com and judd will send you an application which is the first way to start the process and then um you know we'll let you jump in the shark tank hey sean i got a prescription for you buddy because my first 996 was a cabriolet they're really fun, by the way. My prescription is you take your wife for a date when it gets warm in the springtime. You take her for a long, take us for a ride in the mountains. Now, don't 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 tear it up because you don't want to lose your wife on this deal, right? You got to keep her plugged in and, and happy about the Porsche thing. You don't make her sick. Take her up to the mountains, take her out to eat, and enjoy life. Okay, brother. Yeah, I live in Central Ohio, so not much in mountain option, but. <laughs> Well, whatever you can find. Well, whatever and she gets find. motion sickness. She gets motion sickness <laughs> yeah. anyway, right? So, yeah. you know, yeah. And my, my wife gets that too. And luckily my daughter doesn't. She can do anything. We ride all yeah. kinds of stuff together. It doesn't bother her. I was afraid uh, she was going to end up with Michelle, that freight. But that's, that's miserable. Well, oh, that's, that's Michelle, actually. My, my wife can drive manual. That's why I'm going to get myself back into a, probably a manual car if I can find one. Because she can actually drive the manual. Can your wife drive manual, Sean? Oh, yeah. Yeah, she can. I mean, we're still like, I mean, they're like the last generation of women probably that can yeah. 
Well, my, my daughter is 11. She can drive a manual. Actually, it's, it's, it's all it's about funny. passing it down, you know. It, it's, yeah. it's funny, though. You did remind me of one other thing that I, I found very interesting about this engine. So um, tail end of last year, I think it was about August of last year, I put a set of um, sole, sole headers and sole cats on it, but I've still got the stock mufflers. So it's quiet quiet when you're off the throttle but it's you know it's got a pretty good growl when you're when you're on hard acceleration my daughter actually didn't like the car after i put the the catalytic converters on it when i when i was accelerating hard because she said she didn't like the sound and the one thing i've noticed and i don't know if it's you know the way it flows through the heads now or what it is but the, actually the exhaust growl even at hard acceleration is a little different it's not as harsh um well, it's funny because my girls, well, uh, it, when they were little, they loved the sports exhaust, man. Yeah. When it so, would kick in, they would just—it's like being on a roller coaster for them. Their hands up, woo! They just loved it. Well, but, that's uh, way—that's uh, way I was going to say. That's the way my daughter is in the 500e because that car is—it's—it's <laughs> it's very docile until it really comes yeah, on, yeah. and then it oh, yeah. screams and it's quiet. But I oh, put yeah. a different I love set that. of exhaust and stuff that, on that it. Car is a um, that, that's a but, whole other. But the reason, Sean, that it does that is because of the cam timing. So I don't use stock cam timing. So it takes away some of that, I call it blustery type of a trait of the exhaust, where it, it just doesn't sound refined. So changing the cam timing and, and not doing the standard protocol helps with that. And it also helps with power. You know, people that just throw cam timing tools in these things and they set it the way the factory does, you know, um, I, I usually set them up a little retarded and um, we don't put much lead into the intake. We set the, 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 the exhaust up a little on the retarded side. And that's something I've been doing for a little while now. And I did it with that engine. And man, I tell you, um, it really wakes them up. And it, like you said, it changes the exhaust note. It changes the exhaust, exhaust note on the dyno, too. Uh, we can tell that, especially above 5,000 RPM. You can really tell that that exhaust note doesn't have that same trait anymore. I, I think that's one thing we have over the air-cooled ones. Man, I tell you, you know, you get uh, you get up to a, a Vario Ram 993, and they scream too. You know, they they really do. And those big those big uh, two-valve heads start to flow, and they start putting on the power. You know, they can make as much power as these engines do. I mean, it's... Um, you know, I, I'm doing a, a actually for Abe Schlott right now. I'm doing a 4.1, 4.1 liter, uh, 993 based engine for a, a 904 replica, uh, which this would be like the sixth engine I've done for Abe. But um, you know, it's an animal, and that's a the last one of those I did made 446 horsepower at like 7,400 RPM um, because it's all lungs. You know, it's just almost um, impossible but, for us to find for me to find a an air cooled car. But of course I've been going through hell in the last year with my kids having accidents and stuff. So my liquid cash is out the door. That's a whole nother story. But I, I guess one of my bucket items would be to own one of those air cooled cars just to, for a while, you know, enjoy me, it. Me too. I'd, I'd like to have a 993, but prices are so insane. Oh, I know. Now. It's just outrageous. I mean, you could find a lot of those. It was just, I guess before, well, there was a time where people were dumping them on the market. Now, it, it, I don't see anything. You can just see you can find the targets for nothing, the yeah. air cool targets. Um, but now, even those are even well, the, the tide even, brings it all up, you know. And I, I actually sold all of mine. Um, I, my my eighty eight career, which is the one I was going to keep forever, 
Uh, I've had that car for years, and you know, I just didn't drive it anymore. I mean, I'm, I like military vehicles. I like weird stuff. I don't really want to go to Porsche events anymore. Um, and I, I bought a chunk of property, and I spent all my time on my property running a bulldozer and hunting and things like that. So yeah. I don't really care about yeah. events yeah. anymore. I haven't been to Cars and Coffee since before COVID, man. So you know, I just yeah, I um, haven't been either. I, 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 I want to get anything. back. It, they stopped doing them, but now they're starting to. It's, it's Saturday, actually, but I, I I don't care anything about going. I was like, yeah, I might go, but I'm no, yeah. I think you can work on my freaking bulldozer. But anyway, um, yeah, it's I sold the '88 to one of our customers because he really wanted it, and he actually has a R43 powered 997. So he's got the same car as yours, Sean, but with a R43 in it that made like 470 in that neighborhood so it's an animal and he's in southern california he drives that car every day by the way even in socal traffic with a r43 and a heavy clutch uh, he still drives that car but you know I, I said i'm thinking about selling my 88 i put it on the owner's group and he messaged me and a couple other guys messaged me and then i went through that period where i oh, i don't know if i want to sell it and i was like the hell with it you know i, I can i would rather have the space empty in the building uh, to put a World War II vehicle. And that's what I did. So I'm actually shipping it out to him next week. And um, it'll be kind of hard well, to see that Life is too short not to do what you enjoy, you know? Yeah, and I mean, the my time with those cars kind of come and gone. I kept my 912E, which was my very first, you know, 911-ish car. Before that, all the Porsches I had were 914s. So that 912E, I've had that car for 27 years or 26 years or something like that now um and i'll keep that one forever it's got oh, the it's original just a beautiful car i mean and, and, i've looked um, at the 912s a lot you just don't see them that look like that with the sunroof and the the white well, and, and the condition e, you know my mine's an e so it's a whole different car it's 76 one year car one year only you know it's got a 914 engine in it from the factory basically so um but it, that was my test car, and I put 160,000 miles on it in like nine years, and I drove the snot out of it. And you'd never know it because it still looks like a new car in many ways. It's never been restored. Um, and then, of course, my 356, which is just an animal. Um, so those are the two I decided to keep. And then the other ones I sold. I had a 964. I sold that. Then I sold a 993 to another one of our customers, and then I sold the 88. And I sold all those in about a two-year period, you know. So, but, uh, and then the, the fellow that bought the 993, the 993 was actually my wife's car and it was a Tiptronic and he, he loves it. I, I built a 3.9 liter for it. I call it an R39 and it's a screamer. I mean, that thing, even being in a Tiptronic, I mean, that yeah. thing just, it, it rips That's and it fun. actually loves it. Cause it's got that, it's only a four speed automatic, but it's got really tall gearing. So you give that thing a really broad, flat torque curve and it just pulls for ever it never stops pulling um and steve wong did me a tune for it and um you know it was a screamer and, and he cordell's been driving that car a lot all up and down the west coast so um, well it, it surprises me and i, I mean it, it seems like with the 996 like with the turbo cars you know the, the fully manual the true manual has was phased out now you the 991 and 992. I, I don't even know if they do a turbo in, in a manual. I don't think they do, uh, but I, I am, you know, not a hundred percent. It's almost like automatics are the way things are moving. And I've read several articles. That's where the demand is. So it's like the true manual cars are a very well, small mean, percentage. 
think about how many people can't drive a stick. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and, and, and a lot of people are not proficient. And I, mean, I get it. I, mean, I get it. And what some people physically is, can't, you know. Well, if you're in LA or if you're in freaking New York or even in Atlanta, driving a stick sucks. It oh, sucks because exactly. exactly. there's nothing worse than bumper to bumper traffic than sitting there and on and off the your, clutch. And if you have, like, I think, Sean, you said you had some knee surgery. Is that correct? I'm I'm probably going to have to at some point. Well, Unfortunately, it's not my clutch foot. So. Yeah, I'm not. I'm just saying that people that have gone through knee surgery and hip surgery, they just have to give up the manual cars because of pushing that clutch is is painful. So they end up getting uh, you know an automatic, which I mean they're still fun. I mean you know, but it, it's less. I guess if I was to give it a word, it would be less engaging because you're using less of yourself. To, you feel like you don't have total control over the engine, even though with the paddle shifters, I mean, you can get some of that sense. But if the governor, if the governors kick in, you know, I've had cars at paddle shifters and you didn't shift it just right, it'd shift for you. It's like, what the heck? So, I mean, being in a true manual car, that's that's one of the great things. You, you feel like you have the total control over that engine and you feel more engaged with the machine. And so it's kind of sad to see that's kind of weird things. But heck, We'll all be in Tesla before than long. I was going to say that's that's better than a freaking electric car, and I think electric cars have their own place. You know, uh, so, again, if you're in some urban area or whatever, and you're not driving a lot, you're not going on long trips. Yeah. Hey, an electric car is okay if you, if the power grid can support it. That's another whole day. Oh no! Uh, so whole, so, no, so it but, is funny. It's funny because I, I was listening to the electric car chat at the last one. So I changed jobs last uh, last year, and first first time ever in my career, um, job comes with a company car, and my company car is a Tesla Model Y, and so it's been interesting. I mean, I, I that thing's a great appliance. It's it's great when you know the weather's mediocre for driving you know driving back and forth to the office. It's I, I said it's like driving an iPhone, but it is fun the difference between driving that and and then getting in getting in the 997 and driving because it is a whole different experience i mean again oh, yeah. lots of torque endless torque but it's just not the same I my mean, first it's, dirt it's a bike whole different was a, world my first dirt bike was a hondomatic take knows all about this oh yeah i got one yeah two speed man and you know it, i always I, I would really where i was riding that i could hardly get it to go into second gear unless i went out on the road and i wasn't supposed to be riding in the road because I didn't have a helmet. I mean, pff, helmet in the eighties, man. Who the hell is wearing a helmet in the eighties? But I mean, I'm riding three wheelers, a two fifty R, no helmet. I mean, you know. But um, yeah, the Honda Matic thing. It was a challenge for me to get it to shift into second gear into high, you know. But that's like a CVT, and so many cars today have a constantly variable transmission. That you know, it's like you're driving a freaking car. It's powered by a rubber band. I mean, it just the faster it goes, the faster it goes, and you don't ever feel it shift because it really doesn't shift. But well, yeah, I don't I... care anything about those. But but like the nine nine three Tiptronic, people talk crap about those, and in stock form, I didn't like it, but. When I got that car, um, it, my wife obviously could drive a stick because she was racing the 996, and she's got five-lane speed records, and it was a manual. Um, but she's got bad veins in her left leg, and they're, you know, yeah. it's not good to drive a clutch all the time with that because she just fights it. It's almost like a, a bit of a handicap with that left leg in some cases. And in the clutch, especially in the 993, they're pretty heavy. I was like, hey, this automatic, the Tiptronic, could be cool for her. 
and in stock form, it sucked. But when we built the big engine for it, man, it would scream. I mean, and, and yeah. I had the transmission rebuilt, um, and they they actually did a few changes to the valve body and stuff, and it would hold in gear longer, and yeah. it would shift harder. And man, uh, Ericsson Enterprises did that. They do a lot of Mercedes gearboxes, which is basically what that's what that is. And um, it, man, it did a great job. And and Cordell likes it. I mean, now he put a cool steering wheel in it and stuff. And and he likes driving it better than than a manual. He's got a manual nine sixty four Targa. He likes driving that better than the manual car. Uh, they're well, very one is like because you it's say, got fifty horsepower if, more, but still. If you're driving in city, they're great cars, but. Just my personal opinion. I, if I had to choose between paddle shifters and the Tiptronic buttons, paddle shifters. Well, he put paddle shifters on it. He did. He did a special steering wheel with a paddle shifter, so it, it's working really cool. You know, mm. he did a lot more to that car. I mean, when I when I sold it to him, it 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 was in pretty much stock form except for the transmission and engine. But he's taking it to the next level, um, and he loves it. So now oh. I got it. He wants me to build the same engine. <laughs> for his 964 Targa. <laughs> so, oh yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I get it. I mean, these kids, I mean, if you, this generation, if you ask them about manual, they'll immediately say the things that they don't know what to say. Generation needs to be taught better. Yeah, the, the ju- <laughs> there's no, no greater joy than a good double clutch downshift. There's- oh, exactly. And, and, you know, the, and the new automatic cars will do all that. You know, when you're down on the paddle, yeah, it's, like, it's just not the same, you know, yeah. it's the, yeah. of course doing it again, you're engaged with the manual car doing it. Once you get the hang of that, it's pretty cool because you're doing more of yourself. And so you feel like yeah. you're part of the process. So, all right, Jake, I think it's uh, about time to wrap it up. And again, thank you everybody that is watching us on YouTube. I'm going to go ahead and uh, go ahead and stop the feed, guys. But thank you so much for watching. And I hope that you will. We're going to try to do these every week. At least that's kind of the, the tentative plan. And so kind of tune in here on Renvision at 8 o'clock.